Curiosity SD, where successful San Diego leaders share their stories of leading beyond profit and are using the influence of business to positively change the companies and communities we all work and live in. I'm your host, Jeff Blanton from Jailbreak Leadership, a process that focuses on unlocking the full power, passion, and possibilities of the teams and key employees in your organization. We want to thank our collaborative community of San Diego business organizations, the Better Business Bureau, Conscious Capitalism, and Be Local, who are all focused on supporting this next generation of leader. Welcome to the show. Of all the amazing speakers and participants at the Reason Cost Conference, the one person who jumped off the stage for me is our guest today. He was on a panel at the end of the day and only shared a little snippet of his story, but I said, I need to get this guy in the show. Dr. Steve Mayfield, welcome to Conscious Curiosity ST Podcast. Hey, nice to be here, Jeff. I must confess, I personally get angry with the boilerplate, check-the-box effort of so many business leaders. They write a check for some social cause, slap a purpose statement on the lobby wall, or ask the marketing department to whip up some feel-good brand, missing the whole idea and amazing potential behind the movement of business for good. Versus, what happens when you connect your business expertise, that thing that you do, with your passionate hobby? What you get is not only a solution towards one of the world's biggest problems, but you also get an inspiration, hope, and passion-filled purpose for everyone involved. Steve Mayfield, I'm excited to learn how a distinguished professor of biology at the University of San Diego and a passionate surfer is changing the world. This is going to be a lot of fun and okay. anxious to hear the story. Oh, where do I start? Yeah. I, you know what? I, I, I'm going to start with this one. Happy to be here. You know, the CAUSE conference was really interesting for me, too. Met a lot of uh, super interesting people who clearly are passionate about what they're doing. I think the main thing, and we were talking about this before, there are so many problems on this planet that are right in front of us that some of them I see and I think, how is it possible everyone else doesn't recognize that we have to do something about this immediately and significantly or we are really going to face consequences and not very far down the road. And yet I'm always shocked by the number of people who are just kind of like, oh, Oh, really? Do you, is that what you see? Oh, I didn't really think that. Not my problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, and, and I think it's not even so much of people not thinking it's their problem. I think that they, even the ones who see the problem don't think that they personally can impact it. They're kind of waiting for somebody else to step up and do it. I, right. Sometimes the problem seems so big. Like what's, what, what could be, what, what's my contribution to this? How can I solve this? Right. Yeah. And, 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 and I think we're also trained right from early on, especially as scientists, by the way, not to be out in front leading, right? That that's not our job. Our job is to discover the truth, to do good science, and to publish it. And what I've learned over the last 40 years is, oh, that's not even half. That's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. That That is not a solution. That is simply some tools for you to come up with a solution. Let's circle back here. Okay. How did you get here today, right? I mean, here you are, a professor, yeah. uh, surfer, you know, you're an entrepreneur. What's your story? What's kind of a couple of defining moments that uh, in your career that got you to where you are today? You know, in, in many ways, I think my story is probably similar to a lot of people who end up where they were, which is, oh, it was a serendipity and a circuitous path and nothing was straightforward. And no way did I plan to be here when I started out. 
I've been doing this for a year now, and that's pretty much the story. Uh, Yeah, and and you know what? It's actually one of the things I always tell the students in my lab. You always want to have a plan. Your plan will never work out. And the reason it won't work out is not because it was a bad plan or not because you didn't think about it well. It's because other things came up that you couldn't anticipate, and you had to respond to them. So I think in many ways, that is exactly me. You know, I started out as a surfer. Right. In high school, that's all I cared about. Right. I was I was in Los Angeles at the time. I had an uncle who lived here in Del Mar, right, right down by the beach. And me, my friends and I were <laughs> we were we were on the 405 Friday at two and didn't come back till Sunday night. Right. Down, down here, just surfing or surfing up in Los Angeles. And so I wasn't really even thinking about science so much. And then I got into, you know, but I, I kind of like everyone who went to high school with me. Well, you got to go to college. Right. That was the thing back then even probably more than it is today. And so, you know, I went to college and then in college, it's like, man, I'm kind of doing really well in these science classes. Found your niche. Yeah, I found my niche, you know, just, and it it was a strictly competitive thing. It wasn't like, oh, I really love this. It was just like, man, I'm the top of the class. And, And just because it was fun to learn that stuff, especially the chemistry and the biology, right? And so then during that time, a professor who was a very smart guy and a very, you know, compassionate guy is like, hey, you need to go and start working in science. You're doing well in the classes, but I can see you're not responding to yet. This is going to be your future. So he got me an internship at the Justice Department in San Luis Obispo. Justice Department. Yeah, they had a criminology lab. Right. Oh, okay. And oh man, and believe me, it couldn't be more different than those science that's, that's, that's TV, TV shows. Show. Oh yeah, no, God. Back then it was so crude. It was unbelievable. But but what it did is you, you weren't driving Ferraris and uh, having this super cool lab and beautiful women running all around. <laughs> quite none the, of those. <laughs> Actually, absolutely none of those. What we did have was a bunch of kind of gnarly Justice Department guys, especially the DEA agents. Oh man, these guys were tough. They operated in a tough neighborhood and they would come in with all kinds of gnarly stuff, including, you know, bags of drugs. And they'd say, oh, we're pretty certain this is whatever, heroin, this cocaine, this whatever nasty drug they would have. And then it was our job in the in the lab just to say yes or no and tell them what percent it was. And so we had pretty basic chemistry, but you could do these things relatively quickly. But what that really opened my eyes to was, oh, this is what science really is. It's an application. Yeah, well, and not only that, it's an unknown. It's somebody bringing you a bag of powder and saying, I think it's this. And then you go through a set of analyses and tell them yes or no, and this is what it is. And so that was kind of cool to me. Oh, it's solving puzzles. That's what science really is. Uh, and I was, and I okay. always liked like doing that. that as a kid. And then it became, oh, this is just kind of, you know, three-dimensional puzzles now that we get to do. And so then when I was finished with undergrad, it was obvious to me by then, okay, I'm going to go into science. Went to Berkeley, got a PhD in genetics, went over and did a postdoc at the University of Geneva in Switzerland for a couple of years. Oh, that was super fun. You know, kind of opened my eyes to the international applications of science. Came back here to San Diego in 1986 at the Scripps Research Institute as an assistant professor. Kind of worked my way up through that. And early on, I was sort of on the classic path, right? And the classic path for an academic is you write grants, you get money into your lab, that allows you to hire postdocs and students, you work on projects, you publish papers. If you publish enough papers, you become famous. Publishing those papers gives you the data to write new grants, and that's the cycle that you live on. 
write a grant, hire the people, publish a paper, write a new grant. You just go through that. And I was successful at doing that, right? I was a pretty good writer. I was pretty logical, kind of moving along pretty well. And then after about, oh, 12, 13 years, sometime right around 2000, a lab next to us got a guy visiting from Pfizer, the drug company. And he would just wander around and talk to people. Like he was sort of on sabbatical. And so he, okay. and so he walked He walked into the lab one day and just said, hey, what do you do? And I explained to him what I did. And then that time we were working on algae, this little green algae. And we had happened to make a protein in it called a green fluorescent protein, GFP. And we had little algae that were fluorescent green. You go into a dark room, shine a light on them, shining a black light on them, they fluoresce green. So he came in and looked at that. And he said to me, if you can make GFP, you can make monoclonal antibodies. And monoclonal antibodies are very expensive for us to make. You should make them an algae. I bet it's going to be way cheaper. And we're like, okay. So he so, wasn't just hanging out. He, <laughs> oh, no. He was a, he was an industrial spy. Yeah, exactly. At, at, at yeah, what are you working on here that we might make some money with, right? It, exactly. At the time, I didn't recognize it, right? And it worked out good for <laughs> me that I did a good guy didn't. hanging out here in the lab. He's just another curious scientist, right? <laughs> right, right, yeah, right. He to be an industrial spy. Yeah. But at any rate, so he... So we did. We ended up making an antibody. It was a monoclonal antibody, and it was directed against herpes simplex virus, HSV. And that's cold source for us, which is no big deal, except that, you know, they're kind of obnoxious. But for preemies, this can be lethal. If you are a premature baby and you get an HSV infection because mom's got it and it goes into your lungs, it kills you. And this is true in the third world, and this is true here in the United States. So the reason we picked that one and the reason he gave it to us was because you had to make that really cheap because it's what's called a prophylactic. You're not treating a disease. You're just flooding the birth canal with an antibody to bind to that virus so the kid won't get infected right when he's being born because that's when they get infected right then, right? And, uh, and so you have to give this to everybody. You're not going to diagnose this, so it's got to be uh, cheap. Okay, it's okay, got to be got something it. that you can just... and. Monoclonal antibodies back then were $1,000 a gram, and you were going to need two or three grams. So it's like, well, no one's going to spend two or 3000 bucks. But he correctly perceived, hey, if you could make that for a buck, oh, then it's game on. So we did. Because we have volume. Exactly. Yeah, plenty of volume. Oh, yes. They had plenty of volume for the use of it and making an algae. You know, the, the joke always used to be you fill your bathtub up with water and algae will grow in it, and it will. Right? You guys all know this. It grows in your bird bath. It grows everywhere. It's not hard to grow. But here's the epiphany moment for me. So we made that, published a paper, and the Los Angeles Times business section called me up and they said, we want to do a story on this. And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. So they said, we're going to send down a photographer. So they did. I think this was 2002, I want to say, maybe 2003, 20 years ago. And uh, they came down, they did a story on us, ended up on the cover of the business section of the Los Angeles Times. Well, all of a sudden now, all of my neighbors know who I am. And my mother- You're famous now, Steve. <laughs> exactly, when I, I remember calling my mom, and she lived in San Luis Obispo, my mom and dad were up in San Luis Obispo at the time they passed away now, but then they were in San Luis Obispo, and she got the LA Times, and saw this article. And I didn't warn anybody because I didn't know what they were going to do. I assumed it was going to be on the back cover. No, it was a big picture of me right in the front. And she was like, oh, my God, I finally know what you do. For 20 years prior to that, 
I would explain to my parents what I did, and my mom would look at me and she'd say, I don't understand one That's bit of that. Funny. <laughs> but but if you like it, then I like it. Now all of a sudden she could understand it. Oh my God, I was her son was making a treatment that could save premature babies from a bad infection. Okay, now this meant something to her. That to me was a shocking people now understood what I did where I thought I was explaining to them really well before and they just didn't get it. Now all of a sudden they did. If you have an application, if you have a product, if you have something that people can use, science becomes relevant to them. Right. Oh, and this just hit like a thunderbolt in my lap. Because at the end of the day, people don't care that much about the science. They care about what the end product is. Exactly. Does it That's work all or they not get, work or exactly. how to make my life better or whatever, right? It, it, so. Which is true to this day, right? Yeah. You don't care how your iPhone works. You just care yeah. that you can text your friend and that you can, you can listen to podcasts on it. That's what you care about. The science behind it is required to do it, but people don't don't care about it. They can't care about it. They don't have the time right. to care about it. Okay. This completely changed my life because then I recognized in kind of a capitalistic way, this is better for me, not because I'm changing the world. I actually was not thinking about, oh, let's do things to change the world. I was simply thinking then the more famous you become in science, the easier it is to get a grant and the easier it is to write a paper. And so this is going to make my life easier because now I don't have to sell myself so hard because it doesn't matter what business you're in, you're selling yourself. Right, right. Science is the same as anything else. You are selling your ideas to a bunch of people you don't know and trying to convince them that they should give you money to work on that project. It's salesmanship. And I thought this was just an easier way to sell. Over, over the next really decade, that evolved from, oh, this is a good way for us you know, just to get more competitive in science to, holy schmoly, there are all kinds of problems out there that we can apply this technology to. Yeah, pharmaceuticals was one of them, but then it quickly became, oh, we could make biofuels. And that started in earnest back in 2007. And to this day still continues. The White House today announced a new push to get transportation to what they call decarbonize the transportation sector. For cars, that's going to be by getting electric cars. You're not going to get electric airplanes to fly across the oceans, right? We're going to continue to have fuels for those. Fuels, yeah. So can we make those out of biofuels? Can we make those out of carbon neutral fuels? So even to this day, they're doing it. But once we started that, and I actually started a company called Sapphire Energy back in 2007 to do that, we were going to make biofuels from algae. And the premise was pretty simple. Petroleum comes from algae. It's not melted dinosaurs. It's not geological formations. It's hundreds of millions of years of algae growing in the ocean, sinking to the bottom of those oceans, being covered by silt and sand. And then over time, algae becomes crude oil and natural gas. That is the only place it comes from. I didn't actually know that. <laughs> no, it, it, it's shocking. It's shocking. Even most of the oil companies don't so, know. Someone that. must have told me in high school or something that it came from yes. dinosaurs. Yeah. So the idea was pretty simple, right? Which is, hey, let's just grow algae in real time. And so we don't have to dig up that fossil algae yeah. oil. We fast, can just fast, make fast forward the program. Yeah. Exactly. So that worked really well. And actually, that company, Sapphire Energy, was successful for 10 years until 2015, 2014. When the price of oil went from 100 bucks a barrel to 30 bucks a barrel, right? right? The and seven. today it's about the economics, right? Yes. And so that just crushed everything. That just stopped investment into it. 
we were had a, the possibility of being economically viable at 100 bucks a barrel. Biofuels did not have the possibility of being economically viable at 30 or 40 bucks a barrel. Investment dried up. But even before that, I looked at it and said, hey, wait a minute. Is this really the best use of our cool little oil that we're making? Do we really want to take this stuff and break it down into gasoline and burn it in a car? That just kind of seemed like not the best use especially considering all the other things we could make of it. So we pivoted, I pivoted, and my lab pivoted. And we simply said, starting in 2013, hey, let's do algae as food. That's what the world really needs. Here, here's another little shocking thing that a lot of people don't know. The world's population, when I was born in 1955, the world's population was under 3 billion people. Yeah, right, eight now, right? We passed eight this last year. You think about that, three billion to 8 billion in 60 years. That is the most unsustainable number. And, and growing. And growing. That is the most unsustainable number ever. Except add on top of that, that 50 years ago, the world income was around $6,000, $7,000 a year. Not in the U.S., but worldwide it was that. Today, it's closer to $30,000 a year. So not only did we almost triple our population, we more than tripled our economy. So those things compound. What does that mean? That now means you have 8 billion people that are buying stuff, whatever that stuff might be. It doesn't matter if you're talking about cars or food or shoes or you name it. We are consuming at a rate now that is 100 times what it was just a century ago. We, we could not define better unsustainable, mm. right? This is absolutely unsustainable. So we looked at that and we said, there's three things that we can address. We can address the number of people, population, not much I can do about that. That's kind of out of my control. We can also talk about the amount of stuff people consume. Okay, so I can do as little something about that because I can tell people stop buying cheap crap, stop buying things you don't really don't need. There's an education process and I can work on that. But the third one, which is what I really spend my time on, is the efficiency of production. We looked around and we said we would find it absurd to drive to work today in the cars they had 100 years ago. Of course you wouldn't do that. No one's going to drive a Model A. How about fly the airplanes that were here 100 years ago? Well, okay, there weren't airplanes yeah, 100 years ago, just, so we could do that. Yeah. How, how about the cell phones we had 100 years ago? Oh, well, wait, those have only been for 20 years. So almost everything we do today is technology that has been invented in the last 20 years or 50 years or maybe 100 years. Agriculture is 12,000 years old, and we essentially do it the same today that we did it 12,000 years ago. We've gotten industrialized that we use a lot more machines to do it, but we really haven't changed the fundamental process of that. And so we looked at that and said, we can change that. There's no reason that invention can't be applied to agriculture. What's the example of that? The example of that would be let's use algae, which is 20 times more efficient than terrestrial plants at capturing CO2 and converting it into food. Let's use that as part of our food chain. Mm. Maybe people eat it, but certainly we feed it to animals. Certainly we feed it to cows and chickens and pigs. Then the second one we sort of looked at, we said, okay, that's a really important one. What's another one? Well, plastics come from petroleum. Petroleum comes from, from, algae. from algae, fossilized algae. 
hey, why don't we make plastics directly from algae that we grow in real time? And so we started down that path in 2016 to see if we could do it. And let's modernize this a little bit. Let's not just make replacement plastics. Let's not make the exact same thing. Let's make something that works as well, but is actually better. So when we started to reinvent these plastics, we said, definition number one is they have to be biodegradable. People will not recycle them. This idea that we're going to recycle plastics is complete. It's not, it's not, not working. Oh, wait. Well, Recycling went down in the last two years worldwide. We were at about 7%. We're down to 5%. And not because we're putting less effort into it. It's because we're increasing the plastic. So that is not going to happen. Nobody ever complains about the plants and the trees that are floating around in the ocean gyres causing problems. Why not? Because they're not there. Why are they not there? Because they biodegrade it. Right? I guarantee you that as many plants get thrown into the ocean, washed down rivers, washed off of beaches as plastic does, probably a hundred times that much. It's not a problem because it biodegrades. That's how biology takes care of itself. It turns it over. So this idea that we were gonna recycle plastics was fantasy. It was greenwashing. It was like the cigarette companies putting filters on cigarettes to save us. <laughs> Same thing. The, the plastic right. industry just decided, hey, let's start a whole thing where we can recycle these. Never happens, never gonna happen. So let's make biodegradable plastic. So that's the route we went down. And we've been super fun the last four or five years because we started out with the idea that we could make cool products that worked just as good as existing ones, except they were made from plants and they biodegraded at the end of their life. And that turned out to be true. So let's talk about some of the products you're making now. I mean, uh, you got the shoes, we got surfboards, we got a lot of different interesting, fun things that you're doing, Steve. So what's the applications, right? You talked about a big turning point in your life was all of a sudden science became the application. So what are you doing? How, how are you affecting the world? Yeah, well, so in, on two fronts, right? So one is we continue to do, I continue to run a lab at UC San Diego. And, uh, and that's funded by the Department of Energy and the National Science Foundation. And in that one- It's like work, a day job. Yeah, it's kind of, except, you know, it's, it's become more of my night job and my day job is, is, is actually making products. But, but in that way, we continue to do basic research. We continue to focus on, on how do we improve algae and how do we get it up to commercial scale. And we really split that into two worlds. World one is how are we going to do this for food, right? How are we going to get algae so people can consume it either themselves as a nutraceutical, as a straight food substitute, could we make, for example, now we make cheese proteins in algae. Can we make vegan cheese by making the actual proteins the cows make, except we make them in algae? That's sort of about half the lab. And then the other half of the lab is on polymers. Can we make polymer precursors and then turn them into polymers? And the polymer we concentrate on are called urethanes, polyurethanes. And then the other half of my life is I am the CEO of a company called Algenesis Materials, in which we actually make products and put them on the market that are made from biodegradable polyurethanes that come from algae or other plants. And uh, and, and like I said, that's about 50-50 now. I'm a 50% employee at UC San Diego and a 50% employee at Algenesis. And, and uh, that works out well for both groups because the university now sees that their future is not just in making discoveries and publishing papers, it's in training kids. Ah, so and, you, you feel like you've actually had an effect on the university system and how they're viewing the world and what they're trying to produce today? Yeah, I mean, when I, I, I was specifically recruited to UC San Diego 14 years ago now, 
Marianne Fox was the chancellor then. And she had heard a talk I gave and she went to the dean of biology and said, we need that guy here because we need to transition from our traditional role of thinking that teaching students only involved lectures in classrooms. We have to train entrepreneurs. And the only way that, you know, you can't be what you can't see, right? And they, so what do the students see? They see academic lectures up there and they read out of textbooks. They don't see that they're going to be the leaders and the futures to building the next generation of companies. But if you bring in a guy who's doing that, somebody like me, and they see him, then it becomes, well. It's like, it's like your mother. Like, oh, I know I get it. <laughs> yeah. And, you're not and, just some guy in a lab. You're actually doing something in the world. Well, and, and, yeah. And, and here, here's the way I'll say it in a little bit of self-deprecating way, which is. Most people, I think, look at science and think, those people must be super smart. They must be smarter than me that they can invent that kind of stuff. But when you actually get in my lab, what you realize is like, that guy ain't that smart. (laughs) I think most of my students, if you ask him, would be like, I'm smarter than him. And if he can do it, then I can do it. Because that's it. You see that it's not magic. You see that these people are not geniuses. What you see is no what made them different was the passion and the commitment and the dedication. Everyone fails. I fail 95% of the time in my lab, but I don't give up, right? I fail and I go, okay, that was a bad idea, or maybe it was a good idea and I didn't execute it correctly. There's a variety of reasons things don't work. But if you stick to it and do it again and again, you will eventually figure it out. Those, those are the people who are successful. You know this from everybody you talk to. So what drives that passion for you? Well, now it's like, now I have to say, it's looking at the world on fire and thinking to myself, if all of us don't immediately get engaged in making this world more sustainable, this thing is going to burn to the ground. There's just no if, and, or buts about this. The oceans are going to be dead, lifeless in another 30 or 40 years. Already we've depleted them to the degree. This is what the, we, we call the third mass extinction that we are under right now. The other two were brought about by asteroids or whatever, you know, 60 million and 180 million years ago. This is now brought about by humans. This is 8 billion human animals consuming way more than that planet can sustain. And so where did they take that out of? They take that out of the environment either because we're overfishing the oceans or because we're cutting down the forest or because we're depleting the water or you name it. We are drawing on an account of natural resources, a bank account of natural resources that were accumulated over millions or hundreds of millions of years. And we are going to deplete all of them in the next 50 years. And when those are gone, we're gone. We're in trouble. We're gone and we're going to be gone in a very ugly way. This is not going to be like, oh, let's I think, just- I think, I think at some level, Steve, I think people look out, they look at the ocean. Yeah. You know, we, we're fortunate where we have to live, and you go, things so massive. I mean, how, yeah. how come when you affect, in fact, I saw a friend of mine, he goes, I heard the ocean was going to raise like one inch. What, what's, what's the big deal? Yeah. But you think about the size of the ocean raising one inch, yeah. a lot of things happen to make that happen. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. you really start to think about it, but in general, you go, oh, what's one inch? What's, what's the big deal? So I think that's part of the problem. I think people just have a, the, the issues are so big, it's kind of hard to get their, you know, their, their head around it at some level, maybe. Well, and, and I can tell you this as an old guy. I, there are many friends that I have. I'm, I'm a golfer. 
And golfer, I, I, surfer, you got it all going. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> more, more golfing lately than surfing. Uh, water, it's cold. Well, it's, cold, cold. <laughs> it's cold out there now. Can't fix that with yeah. algae. Or what? Yeah. Come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> A tropical place. I'm more of a tropical place surfer now. It's cold here. Summer. I'm summer in the tropical places. I like when you were a kid. It didn't matter how cold no, it was. No, I'm convinced that our nervous systems don't really develop until sometime in our 50s. So we just don't even appreciate how cold that water is till we get older. But anyway, I, I, I think you're right. I, I think part of it is people look at it and they're like, man, look how big this is. I'm just one individual. How can I impact that? And they're not thinking about, well, there's 8 billion others of you that are all having that little impact. But I think the other thing is humans tend to do today what they did yesterday. And they tend to think that everything is just, that it's a constant, that it's just a linear and it's going to go on. Now, you and I, as you get older, you recognize, oh, that's not true. My muscles do not heal as fast as they used to. And I am not as flexible as I used to be. Things are definitely. Well, that's just you, changing. Steve. I'm, I'm you know. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Jeff. You're something to take. Okay. So, so, so part of it is just human nature not to accept change. But I think part of it is also this kind of idea that because I got something today, I, I deserve it. It's kind of like a birthright. It's like, of course, I drive a big truck. I drive a big truck because I worked hard and I got the money to buy it. And it's not that those things aren't true. It's that if those are true for everybody on the planet, we're all going to crash and burn. And some people just refuse to see it. And, and it, I, I don't want to say that these people are selfish, although there's certainly a, a component of that. Like, I just have to take care of myself. I think it's also that they're just not looking at the big picture. They're not seeing the forest for the trees. And But when you do see that, and then you start to see it all around you. So the kids now coming up, fortunately, see that much better, I think, than we do, or at least they accept it much better than we do. When I talk to my sons, when I talk to the students in my classes, not one of them says, I have a right to drive a giant pickup truck. They're saying, do I really need it? Does that right, make right. me happy? So who right. sold us on that concept, right? I mean, that's kind of part of the interesting part of capitalism is yeah. how we get convinced that we got to have these things and bigger is better and he with the most uh, toys wins and all that kinds of good stuff. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's kind of how we've been brought up and maybe the world's starting to change a bit, which kind of leads to where I wanted to go a bit was as, as a professor in the university system. I mean, what do you see? When, I, when, you, when you're interfacing with the students, you know, everybody seems to have all these kind of mixed thoughts about the next generations coming in. What, what's your view? What, what are you seeing from the kids? Oh, so here, here's what I hear from the kids. What, what the kids tell me is that we, meaning you and me, the baby boomers, have trashed the planet, you know, both environmentally, economically, and socially. Some of them resent us for it quite a bit. In fact, the common thing that I will hear the students say to me is, well, you're not one of them, but those guys. And of course, they're talking about me. They're talking about my, our generation. Our generation, they're, right. They're, they're talking about that, right? And, and as an individual, they won't trash me. Let me tell you, this day is coming, right? And I can, and I can already, I think we're seeing it politically now. These kids are realizing, oh, this is a democracy and there's more of us than them. Right now, we don't do much because we're too busy worried about the girl or the guy across from us and how I can impress them and do that. But but I think a lot of them are starting to figure out. And when they do, I think, I think they're going to take it out on us a bit. 
right? Uh-oh. It's not going to look good in the old folks' home. It's not. I, 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 <laughs> or in trouble, Steve. <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think it'll be an individual basis like that, but I will think this, I, I think the idea that because you lived 65 years, everything gets taken care of for you until you die is going to end pretty quick here. I would not be surprised if a Congress comes along in the next 10 years and says Medicare's out. It's like you guys, yeah, you earned it, fine. You just we're but we're not paying for it. And right? that's the model, right? The guys behind and us that's the to model. Be paying for us. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's also part of the problem. The model has always been economic growth and increase in numbers, right? right? Like the population has to grow because you need more young people more, to more capitalism. With the old people. That's keep, capitalism, yep, right? Keep driving and, it. And that system is boo, it's on its last wobbly legs. And when it collapses, it's not gonna be very, very, very friendly to you and me. Yeah, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be pretty. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the one product that you brought to the COS conference where I was very excited yeah. about, the shoe program you got. Talk yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah, so how do we get down that when, path? What are your applications? Yeah, yeah so, uh, so we always had the philosophy, ever since the monoclonal antibody and making it on the, you know, into the LA Times, we had the idea that make a product, figure out what all the steps are to make a product, and then solve the individual problems that you have to do to get from where you are to that product. Meaning a product is not just one thing. Like if we talk about our shoe, okay, we invented the polyurethanes that go into what's called the midsole and the outsole, but we also had to come up with a process on the upper so that we could knit the upper part of the shoe out of 100% plant-based materials. We had to come up with shoelaces that met. We had to come up with paint. We had to come up with glue. All of these things had to be biodegradable. Uh, I didn't really right. think about that, right? They're all the components go into that. It, ah, interesting. And, and so- See, again, just kind of simple. I'm looking at, I, I have an engineering degree. I'm not completely out, out the lunch here, right? But right. when I looked at I think of the shoe and I think of like the sole, whatever, it's like, but there's many components there, that go there, into that. There's, yeah, there, yeah, much more and, complicated. Yeah, and so what that gives you though is an opportunity for lots of different science applications on sub parts of the bigger, you know, the, the sort of bigger product. And so for us, it was like, hey, let's get a minimal viable product going first. So that was a flip-flop. So that was the first thing we made because that's pretty simple. No shoelaces. No shoelaces, <laughs> no anything else, right? It, it's a foam, what they call a midsole or a footbed. It's a harder outsole and then a cotton strap to hold the whole thing together. Then when we went to the shoe, we had to do more things. But back to the product line. So we looked at that. When we made the flip-flop, which was the first thing we made, and I walked into congressman or senator's office to talk to them about that they should be supporting sustainable, bio-based materials that biodegrade. That's an abstract concept. When I hand them the flip-flop and I tell them, throw that in your compost pile and it'll degrade in about 100 days. You just see the light comes on. This is back to the uh, the story in the business section, right? It's like exactly. when I see the application, I can connect to that. And, and when I hold it in my hand and put it on the ground and put my feet in it, then I'm like, oh, holy smoke, this is real. Like right. we can do this now. This isn't research for 10 years from now. This is research that has application today. Now suddenly Congress, I'm much more interested in funding that. I'm okay with funding nuclear fusion. You know, Congress has no problem putting their money in for the 40 year or however long it's gonna take us to get there, right? But if I have something that's immediate, oh, this is the reason the NIH has been so successful is because they go after individual diseases. 
solve it. We haven't cured cancer. We haven't cured, but hey, we did make the COVID vaccine in record time and it worked pretty damn well. So once you have something in your hand that you can see, so for us, it was like, okay, we know we're a little more expensive than petroleum. So we don't want to go after products that you can, insulation. Here's a great one, insulation. Oh, it's up in my attic. It's whatever. It's in the walls of the freezer. I don't really see it. I get that it's probably a better idea that that's bio-based and biodegradable. But since I don't see it and touch it, it's kind of abstract to me. So we needed to pick a product that people could hold in their hands and see. And then we also wanted to be economically viable. So, okay, what's the calculation on that one? The calculation on that one's actually pretty simple, which is what does that product sell for? What is the cost of the materials that go into it? And what you're looking for, you know, the arbitrage, as they say, what you're looking for is where's something where even though I might be 50% more expensive than my petroleum counterpart, the actual cost of that in the finished final good is small. Shoes. Shoes are the perfect example for it. This pair of shoes that I'm wearing right now, that's only a third of a kilogram. It's only 330 grams for that. Okay, a third of a kilogram, it costs me $4 for petroleum kilogram. It costs me six bucks for my bio-based one, but I'm only using a third of it. Oh, well, now you're talking about so a, buck, a buck 50 for the petroleum, two, two bucks, two and a quarter for mine, 75 cents more on a shoe that sells for $100. Why? Because where does all the rest of that money, the rest of that money goes into the design, the manufacturing, the marketing, like you spend way more on marketing than that 75 cents. So that's why we pick shoes because we're like, oh, we can actually sell, we could sell our shoe for the same price petroleum shoes are, you know, sold for, except we're way cooler because we're bio-based and biodegradable. Now, unfortunately, you still have to do a huge amount of marketing for that. That's actually the biggest expense on most consumer products, right? It's not the materials in them. It's getting some celebrity to tell people how cool they <laughs> Support, are. You got to pay them a lot of money. <laughs> exactly. Or running ads on the TV or doing right, whatever. Right. And, we, and unfortunately, we don't get around that. We still have to do that. So we've simply accepted we're going to have very slow growth because we're not going to go get a bunch of money and get Kim Kardashian or whoever to say our shoes are cool. So what would you say is the biggest surprise in this journey of yours? Over all these years, you, you kind of look, look back and said, man, here's like the one thing that, wow, never expected that. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll answer that in two ways. First, I'll say maybe the biggest regret that I have or, or the learning that I wish I knew then what I knew now is how much power we have as an individual to do something. Like when I was an assistant professor, I never imagined that I could make a drug, that I could make an antibody that would actually treat something like that. That concept was just, oh, I can't do that. That must be a a hundred of people who are really smart working all together. Same with the shoe. Oh, I could never make a shoe. And now that I've actually got there and done that, yes, there were many painful parts of it. <laughs> yes, it took us way longer than I wanted it to, cost us more than I did, but it actually wasn't that hard. There were individual parts of it that were tough and there were individual parts where it was frustrating. We had to do it multiple times, but it was absolutely doable by me. I knew nothing about shoes. I knew nothing about polymers when I started on this. And we pulled this off. So I would say the one learning I have is you as an individual who's listening to this podcast right now, you have a huge amount more potential than you think. 
It's a matter of getting into the game. Get off your butt, get into the game, and if you stick at it long enough, you will make it work. So I love how, and you were saying earlier, now back in the university system, it's like, how do you start to depart that idea yes. to the students now that you that you have every one of your students have this potential to go out and have a big impact and make things happen and do something that's fun and purposeful, yes, right? Exactly. Shift that mindset. So yeah, exactly. I love it. Love it. What you what you see, you can be right. So if they see me doing it, then they can do it. If they see other students doing it, then it's like, okay, that's it, game on. And yeah. then it becomes a competition. Then it becomes like, okay, those guys did this. I'm going to one up them. This is why Silicon Valley works. It's at the level of competition and everyone being together and seeing each other. That works great. Now, maybe their business model, you, you, right, dis- be cool. what question you, you disagree <laughs> with, right? But the environment to support entrepreneurs and innovation, that's what you need. And you simply need to start those to seed them and they will grow. But I want to answer the other part of it, which is what's the most surprising thing? I would say all of the science sort of collectively, if I look back on it, it's the rate at which we are learning to do new things. Mm -hmm. That's what nobody anticipated. I certainly didn't see. Like, again, we're humans. Humans are used to linear growth. We're not used to exponential change. That happened in science in our ability to learn new things and our rate at which we learn new things. I have high school kids come into my lab for 10 week summer, you know, internships that do more in those 10 weeks than I did to get a PhD at Berkeley 40 years Just ago. Just different pace of the world today, right? It's, it, it, and not by 10, not by a hundred. We're talking a thousand wow. times the rate at which we can do things now. So hopefully that's what's going to save our bacon here as uh, quickly destroying the world as the technology will come full circle and we'll be able to do something here that's going to have an impact that uh, keeps us on the planet here. We all don't have to go to Mars with Elon Musk. (laughs) I I would say, I I would say a, a thought on that one is, and people ask me this all the time, what's the biggest challenge you have to getting your products or getting whatever It's not the technology. Like I said, we can invent biodegradable plastics. We can invent biofuels. We can invent hyper-efficient electric cars. It's getting people to accept them and change to it. Change. It takes takes 20 years. Even people who want to do something, it takes 20 years. That's the most frustrating thing, I think, for myself. It's like the technology is there, guys. The answer's here. Come the answer's on. here. Grab it. Apply it. it now. Let's apply it now. Yeah. And and part of that is individuals' resistance to it. But a big part of it is also that there are existing jobs that are tied to old technology. There's the big one. Yeah, that's the one that always amazes me. It's the upsetting right? of the apple cart. Yeah, exactly. Like coal miners, right? Remember, this was when, when Obama was running, was one of clean coal. But even... You know, the, the politicians are like, well, we can't. Oh, we, we have to keep coal jobs. Why? Go talk to the coal miners. They hate those jobs. They just need a job, though. They yeah. just need a job. They do not want to go underground in the dark with coal dust and mine that right. crap. And die from that. Right? Exactly. So why doesn't somebody have the cojones to step up and say, we're going to change this immediately right now because it's better for you as the individual it's better for the planet, and in the long term, it's better for the economy. Come back to your point. You need to have a 
comprehensive solution. Not just, oh, we're just going to stop that, and you guys are going to be unemployed. It's like, no, we need to look at the whole ecosystem exactly. and say, how do we solve the whole problem so people get jobs and all those kinds of good things coming out the backside of it? Yeah. Well, you're doing some wonderful things, Steve, and I'm glad you uh, had the opportunity to come in here and share a little bit about what you're doing, your story. I really appreciate that. What's like the one big thought you'd like to leave the audience here? That you have an amazing amount of power that you haven't tapped yet, right? And I can't tell you exactly what it is for you as an individual. That's our job. Right. <laughs> but what, what, what I can tell you is, I, I always tell the kids in my lab, you follow the dog rules. Dogs are very successful because they have some pretty simple rules. And the rule number one of a dog, and this is a rule you should follow every day, is put yourself in the right place. When I get up in the morning, my dogs know time to go for a walk. The right place is by the front door. That's where they are. When we come back from the walk, they go, time for breakfast. The place to be is by our dog bowls. They are always in the right place, right? That's dog rule number one, right? Just put yourself in the right place. Then there's a bunch of others. Be enthusiastic. Don't give up. You know, try, try again. All those things, all those cliches. Find your niche. Don't hear that. There's a reason cliches are cliches, right? It's because they're mostly true. But I think the most important thing that I wish I knew then, and this is what I'm telling everybody now, you can do it if you get up and do it. That only thing stopping you is inertia. Is us. Is us. That's our opportunity. Yeah. Well, Steve, I want to thank you for taking the time to come to the show today and sharing your amazing experience, insights, and wisdom. And I want to thank you for all the amazing work that you're doing, uh, not only here for San Diego, but really trying to save the world. And just a great example of someone that's uh, saw something, jumped on it, had a life-changing experience when he realized, hey, this thing I do has got applications. Yeah. And now actually passing that on to the next generations at the university. So that's, that is awesome. So that's our show for today. And if you enjoyed it, please subscribe and comment and most significantly share the podcast with a friend. Again, special thanks to our collaborative community of San Diego business organizations, the Better Business Bureau, Conscious Capitalism, and Be Local. We're all using the influence of business to positively impact our own community of San Diego. I'm Jeff Blanton from Jailbreak Leadership saying, until next time, go do what you do. Go do what you do best, for we're all counting on you.